So I would also very much like to welcome you to this day. It's always a delightful moment when the screens come to life and I I see many people that I know and some that I don't and really, really appreciating your being here. A day like this, a, a day like today is, we will be doing quite a lot of teaching, but I really would invite you to think of this as a shared contemplation, a shared inquiry where you bring what you hear into the light of your own investigation. What does this mean for you? How does this make sense? How do I understand this? Um, you know, what would it be worthy for me to, to cultivate more of? Today, we're going to be speaking about these seven qualities, often referred to by the Buddha as the seven treasures. Now, this is a teaching that is, is very highly respected and central in the teaching of the Buddha and the process of waking up. But what is spoken about in these qualities are not Buddhist qualities. These are very human, human qualities and human potentialities. And I know that many of you are uh, engaged in one way or another with mindfulness or mindfulness teaching or training. And many of these qualities that we'll reflect on today are really quite interwoven in eight-week programs. They're certainly very central in meditative development, but also in eight-week programs, without necessarily all of them being explicitly named. I want to begin by somewhat contextualizing this teaching. Um, the central concern of the Buddha was with human flourishing. You know, he didn't just seek for graduates of meditation or people who had brilliant meditation experiences. His concern was really, how do we flourish? How do we thrive as a human being? And he looked at his own mind and he looked at the minds of those around him. And he saw both, you know, the personal story and also the universal story of the human heart and the human mind. And he really recognized the difficult, you know, the things that we struggle with, but also recognized that this is our classroom. This is our classroom of waking up. Mindfulness in Buddhist psychology is never a standalone quality. It, it's not a destination. In many ways, mindfulness is really the embarkation point. It, it's the launch pad, um, the necessary quality for any kind of change, any kind of transformation to happen. First, we need to be awake to what is happening. We need to learn to meet what we're encountering moment to moment. So mindfulness is always part of, of a much bigger, extended, functional, happy uh, family. Now, part of that extended family I would name as being the, the qualities of the Brahma Viharas, of kindness, of compassion, of joyfulness and equanimity. 
And two of those qualities we find within the list of these seven treasures, which I, I feel is, is really a significant part of this extended family of mindfulness. Now, there's a slight reorientation, I think, that uh, is asked of us as we engage in this path and as we engage in this contemplation. Um, I think of as human beings, we have a kind of perfect storm of conditions that lead us to approach this path in a particular way. We recognize negative attentional bias, how prone we are to highlight the difficult, the broken, the faulty, more often than we appreciate what is well. We often have standards of perfection, of how we should be, um, and what gets in the way of those standards, of, of, of the realization of those standards. And we often have a very pronounced work ethic. You know, we're good workers. We're good at working on things, you know. And very often we transfer this perfect storm of conditions into our path. And, you know, we think about how much we have to work on. Um, we have meditative projects. We have improvement projects, you know, the things that we need to get out of the way in order to thrive and can often have a belief system that if we work hard enough or work successfully, we're going to be somehow rewarded with more joyfulness or more equanimity or more kindness. Um, I think the approach to this path is different than this. And this is also true in eight-week programs. The, the word in Pali, the early recorded language of the teaching for meditation is bhavana, which means something much bigger than meditation. It means something much bigger than sitting on a cushion. It translates as to cultivate or to bring into being. So we're making this shift from what we're working on to what we're cultivating, what, what we're practicing in every moment of our lives, recognizing we're always practicing something. It might be something that is helpful and it might be, we might be equally good at practicing patterns of reactivity that are actually unhelpful. But we're engaged in this process of cultivating, of bringing into being. It's, it's a, I think it's a, a useful perspective to hold in mind and, and to question because it, it asks of us, I think, to find a certain balance in our lives. I, I do feel aspiration in this path is really important to have a sense of direction, to have a sense of where we're going, to, to have a sense of our own capacities and potentialities. It's really, really important to have a, a sense of a pathway and where it is taking us. Um, people who come into eight-week programs also have their own hopes and their own aspirations, you know, their hopes of not learning how to suffer less, you know, learning how to be less distressed, learning how to be more connected, more available, more, more happy, 
you know, and th these aspirations are, are something to be deeply honored. I, I don't think that any of us engage in this pathway. I don't think any of your clients engage in eight-week programs in order to stay the same. You know, that we're just going to somehow be a more conscious spectator upon our own disasters, or we're going to negotiate a certain skill set of dealing with the difficult, of managing the difficult, of coping better. I don't think this is what people are looking for, really. Um, I do feel that we, we recognize as human beings, we, we have enormous capacities, enormous potentialities for deep levels of kindness and clarity and balance. And when the Buddha speaks about, you know, the extended family of mindfulness, he really speaks of these as being in seeds of potentiality that live within the human heart. Seeds of potentiality, seeds of potentiality um, that are to be cared for, to be nourished, to be deepened, um, to be naturalized, to, to find these seeds of potentiality, to allow them almost to settle into our bones. This is, I think, what allows us to live our lives fully, to flourish, to, to feel that we are conscious, engaged, creative human beings, able to live the life that we wish to live, able to wish the lives, live the lives that we long for. I just want to name these seven qualities, these seven treasures, before we go any further. In Pali, the word for these is bojangas. The quality of mindfulness, the capacity for mindfulness. The capacity for investigation, for deep understanding. The quality of, of courage, of courage. The quality of joyfulness. The quality of tranquility, serenity, the capacity of our hearts to know deep levels of collectedness, of integration, of unification, and the quality of equanimity. If I pause there and just see some of Chris's reflections. Thank you, Christina. You know these, don't you? Don't we? You know, sometimes uh, when we're confronted with another uh, list from the Buddha, it can feel like, oh, there are these kind of abstract things out there that I've somehow got to get my, you know, head around and then begin to incorporate them into my practice and my life. But if, if you look or recall the list that Christina's just given us, isn't it true that each of us at some level knows these and probably already treasures them? You probably wouldn't be here today if you didn't already treasure mindfulness and being present. You, you probably kind of know in your bones 
already the curiosity and inquiring into things feels good, feels nourishing, feels part of the gift of being alive. Don't we also know how uh, energy and courage play a part in our daily lives and an indispensable part in our daily lives? Sometimes because they're scarce commodities, other times because we feel how they resource and support us. What a treasure joyfulness is. What a treasure tranquility or calming or experiencing some ease in our bodies and hearts. What a treasure that potential and uh, kind of gift is in those moments when it's accessible. What a treasure, what a treasure, that some capacity to regulate our nervous systems into a sense of greater coherence and collectedness. And what a treasure it is to have our capacity to find some degree of balance in the midst of the changing and challenging commission, uh, conditions of life. So I really want at the start of this day to kind of remind us all that we know these already. You know? And in that sense, we're really sensing the truth of what Christina was saying. And in, in these are seeds, these are potentials, these are, you know, seedlings perhaps would be fair to say, given that we've all tasted all of these. These are seedlings in our bodies and hearts and minds and so precious, so precious. And that the practice is to cultivate them. The practice is to nurture them consciously. Sometimes things can be treasures and we, we're not really conscious of them, you know? haven't really recognized how much I treasure joyfulness or how much I treasure the capacity to be curious about experience. But, but the invitation of this day and of this practice is to, to make these conscious cultivations, which of course means to practice embodying them, embodying them. Christina used that phrase about kind of knowing in our bones. And I always find it interesting that this, this word bojanga that I put in the chat, it, it comes from the, the word bodhi, which means awakening or uh, awakened. And also the word anga, which means, I'll just type that in the chat as well, which means limb. Yeah. And so even in the, the title here, we have a sense of these as kind of embodied qualities, limbs of awakening, that we're invited to, metabol to kind of metabolize into our embodied kind of knowing and experience. And as we'll go through the day, we'll see that the, the Buddha chooses really embodied words for several of them, as if to have, you know, convey this sense that, this practice is about embodying what we 
know to be in the service of our flourishing, in the service of our well-being. And, you know, in this moment, as in all the moments of the day, an invitation just to have that sense of body as where this teaching is intended to land or to pick up the, the horticultural image, you know, this embodied experience, the embodied heart, this is the ground within which we cultivate these seedlings, within which they have the capacity to take root uh, and to, to grow and to flourish. And they're all dimensions of mindfulness. They're all dimensions of mindfulness, almost like, you know, in any musical note, there are harmonics. And that's what makes up the note, the harmonics. These are all, if you like, harmonics of, of mindfulness, dimensions of mindfulness that we're encouraged to wake up to and to treasure and to grow in the embodied art of our lives. we begin this exploration it's it, you know there are schools of thought that see these seven qualities or these seven treasures as something that you know we cultivate on a meditation cushion but I, I think we all know that confusion and distress are not something that we meet on a cushion only that these can be threaded through our lives so I really really would encourage you to think of these as life cultivations. They are, of course, all intention-led. You know, this is central to the cultivation of anything, that we actually set and commit to that intention to cultivate something, to bring something into being. Mm -hmm. And one of the greatest shifts that I see people make on this pathway is this shift from giving authority or the greatest authority to the prevailing mood or reaction or mental state that is present to giving authority to the intention that we are cultivating the intention that we value you know it is so easy and often so unconsciously done that authority is given to just what I feel right now you know, just whatever my mood is, you know, whatever I want right now, whatever I don't want right now, how often authority is given to all of that to, to guide our, our, in an often quite a compulsive way, our, our speech, our thoughts, our actions. And it is such a shift to coming into a way of living an intentional life. Is not guided by, by moods or by mental states or by, by reactivity, but by the intentions to cultivate that which we feel deeply, acknowledge deeply, to be worthy, to be freeing, to be a part of the landscape of bringing distress to an end. In a, in a wider sense, we, we see that we're all engaged in a process of waking up and, and our clients are involved in the process of waking up 
and it's really helpful to to reflect on what that might mean for us. And I think a really big piece of this process of waking up is 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 discovering and nurturing a way of being where we're no longer governed by compulsive patterns and, ha- and habits that tie us to distress. No longer governed by those compulsions. I think waking up involves living in the light of what we most deeply value and understand to be worthy and, and wholesome. Peace, kindness, compassion, ethics, as Chris puts it, to be an embodied human being. I think part of waking up is learning to see the moment, to see life as it actually is. You know, the unarguable nature of change, of conditionality, and how it's really not all about me. You know, decentralizing that the sense of of I and self in the midst of all things. Because so much distress is born of the ways that we argue with the unarguables. This shouldn't be happening. It's not fair. Life, I should be different than I am. You know, this, this shouldn't have happened to me. This is where distress is born. I mean, the, the Buddha put it very simply, you know, as human beings, we are vulnerable to the world of conditions. We're, we're touched deeply by change, by loss, by uncertainty, by insecurity. We're, we're not exempt. We, we don't, we don't, we're not armored although we might try to be armored. But as human beings, we know that we don't have an exemption from these kind of universal patterns or laws of life. So we are touched, and it's important that we're touched because this is what allows for responsiveness, for compassion, for kindness, for caring. But the Buddhists suggested, the early teachings suggest, that we can find a way of living where we're not actually a hostage to the world of conditions, where our consciousness, our mind, our hearts are not defined and governed by all of the changes we meet, all of the uncertainties we meet, all of the fabrications that we meet. So to contextualize these qualities in even a more specific way, I'm going to come to the Satipatthana Sutta that many of you are familiar with because it's the body of teaching of mindfulness, which is at the root of all styles of insight meditation. And it's the body of teaching, which is at the root of all eight-week mindfulness programs. You know, everything kind of draws on this particular, in, in the mindfulness world, everything draws upon this particular body of teaching. And in, it talks about the four ways of establishing mindfulness. And I know this is familiar territory to most of you. The body, feeding tone, uh, moods, mind states. And then this fourth way of establishing mindfulness, where we see sitting side by side these, these two lists. One is the list of these seven treasures. And there is another list. Uh, Pali word is the Nivarana, sometimes is translated as hindrances or obscurations or the patterns of mind that blind or veil 
experience that get in the way of us seeing things as they actually are. Now, these patterns of mind are our primary reactions to distress. This is what triggers these patterns. We meet something that is unpleasant or painful, and we see these patterns being triggered into consciousness. They become primary modes of reacting to what we feel helpless within or what we feel that we cannot bear. Now, the Buddha listed these five patterns as being the primary creators of mental illness and distress. And they are the primary saboteurs of intention and aspiration. These are the patterns that make us forgetful. They make us forget what we value, what is possible for us, our own capacities. They make us forgetful. They have a certain quality of amnesia. And they, they lead away from freedom and really bind us to compulsive activity. So when I name these five, I, I know uh, nobody's going to be surprised. Nobody's going to say, oh, I've never experienced that. Gosh, that happens in somebody else's mind, you know, or, you know, this is, this is not part of my landscape. Sensual craving, you know, the thirst, the wanting something more pleasant than what is happening right now. Ill will or aversion and the whole landscape of ill will and aversion, which is huge. Sluggishness or numbness or dullness, dissociation, disconnection. The pattern of agitation and worry and the pattern of skeptical doubt. If we're not aware of these patterns, it is indeed possible that there are moments when we're unconsciously cultivating them. And as the Buddha put it in the early teachings, whatever we frequently practice will surely grow. Whatever we frequently practice, we will get better about. What we frequently think about and dwell upon, to this does the mind incline. We should never underestimate the power of these patterns, these failing factors. Um, because they, they just so much get in the way of responding appropriately to distress. And so much of what we deeply sacrifice, uh, what we deeply value is sacrificed in the face of these veiling factors. Compassion, mindfulness, equanimity, joyfulness, responsiveness. And a life of awareness, a life of mindfulness tells us that we have Choices, isn't this one of the greatest gifts that people discover in mindfulness training? They actually might have a choice about where I place my attention and what quality of attention I cultivate. In this moment, I might have a choice to attend to the sensation of my feet touching the ground or the, the sense of the sunshine coming in the window that I might have a choice to attend to this rather than the, the, the patterns or the ruminations or the preoccupations that are hammering on the doors of my consciousness. You know, I might have a choice. So we discover that we might be able to choose to cultivate these seven qualities of the heart that, that lead to unbinding, that lead to a greater sense of freedom, rather than feeding 
the patterns, the five veiling patterns, patterns that lead to distress and confusion. Now, you can see there's a certain, I don't think this process of waking up is tension free. You know, I don't think it is tension free. It's certainly not easy. But I, I think it would be rather naive to imagine that this process of waking up is, is completely free of tension. There is tension. And, and we can see it as a negative tension, or we can see it as a creative tension. Because, you know, we see these, you know, we run into all of these moments of, you know, agitation or anxiety or ill will or, or dullness or craving. And, and they seem to, to pull us in a certain direction. You know, there is a certain charge to them, you know, act me out, you know, act me out, you know, do, you know, give me some power. It's almost as if we hold those patterns in one hand and in the other hand, we, we hold the, the the potentiality for these seven treasures. And we can see this, this pull and push. And, you know, I think sometimes people in, in engaged in mindfulness practice somehow imagine that these five veiling patterns shouldn't be happening, that they're a kind of sign of failure. No, no, this is what we do with dukkha. This is what we do with dukkha. This is what we do with distress. And people can see this tension as being quite negative, you know, oh, no, I'm doing ill will again, you know, I'm doing aversion again, you know, I'm doing agitation again, people can become quite self judgmental. But I do think it's actually help, helpful to see this as a creative tension, because the very classroom of cultivating these treasures is, is no other classroom than these veiling factors. There's no other, this, this is the curriculum. You know, this is where we learn to, in the midst of ill will, we learn to cultivate these, these qualities. You know, in the midst of agitation, we, we learn to cultivate these qualities. You know, in, in the midst of, 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 of dullness, numbness, you know, we learn something about cultivating the landscape of, of joyfulness. You know, and, and in the midst of, of, of being faced sometimes with a landscape of distress that seems so huge outwardly and inwardly, we learn to cultivate courage, to show up, just to show up for what is going on right now, both outwardly and inwardly. So this is a creative tension, not some, we don't get over the veiling factors. In the midst of them, we learn to cultivate the potentiality we have. Now, Chris. Thank you. The, the Buddha even calls these awakening factors anti-hindrances. So he, he, he sees them as the antidote for these veiling factors, these hindrances. Uh, that we, again, we all know, <laughs> we all know. And, uh, you know, again, this invitation to find your own knowing of all of these factors that we're talking about, both the, the veiling factors and the anti-veiling factors, the, 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 the medicines for those factors, really to find those in our own embodied experience. And if, we look in the, the Buddha's teachings, we see that uh, 
all the accounts of uh, people fully waking up involve three dimensions. One is overcoming the veiling factors. The second is practicing these satipatthanas, these, these uh, ways of establishing mindfulness, body, feeling tones, uh, moods and, and mind states, and uh, these, these dharmas that we're explaining, and cultivating the awakening factors. And so this leads some, some people to, to talk about these, these lists of the hindrances and the awakening factors held in mindfulness of body, feeling tone, and mood, really as a shorthand for the whole path. This, uh, these are the two lists, the hindrances and the awakening factors that are found in all the different versions of the Satipatthana Sutta, the fourth uh, way of establishing mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. And so really to see the centrality that the Buddha and indeed the tradition gives to these veiling factors and these kind of remedies for them, these, these uh, cultivations through which we can gradually emerge from the, the confusions and the entanglements in which we so understandably and so inevitably get entangled. And if we look at the, the text of this sutta, uh, this Satipatthana sutta, um, we can see that in, when the Buddha uh, describes these two lists as uh, you know, the, the veiling factors and the awakening factors, he uses a similar formula. In both cases, he's, the starting point is to recognize the presence or the absence of that factor in any moment. So, uh, you, you know, often we can recognize the presence of the factors that hinder, that veil, you know. We're, we're often very aware of feeling reactive, feeling confused, feeling addictive, feeling driven by uh, these, these kind of, yeah, forces in our body and our, our hearts of craving, ill will, dullness, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. But the Buddha's right from the, the, the get-go is saying, also recognize those moments when they're not present. Recognize those moments where they really have fallen away, moments of clarity moments of goodwill, moments of, of balance, of ease, of joyfulness, of wakefulness, of, of knowing what we know, which is the kind of, when the doubt factor isn't there, there's a sense of, oh, I know that I really value this, you know. And so the Buddha is saying value and or notice and value the moments when they're not present. Just as with the awakening factors, the Buddha is saying, again, notice when they're present, notice when they're not present. And that's part of you know, our encouragement to, to recognize all of these seven limbs of awakening, factors of awakening. At some level, we know already. 
and really to value that knowing. You know, what is the, you know, the presence of curiosity in your life or the presence of joyfulness or the presence of some degree of collectedness or balance to recognize their presence and to recognize their absence. So the, the first part of the Buddha's uh, instructions in the sutta is this, recognize the presence, recognize the absence of the veiling factors and the awakening factors. The second encouragement is to know on what that presence or absence depends. What is it that intensifies the veiling factors? You know, what is it that I do with my attention that feeds craving, that feeds ill will? that feeds numbness and confusion, that feeds restlessness, that feeds that kind of fearful doubt. You know? And also notice, what is it that I do with my attention that reduces it, that in this moment may remove it? So to get deeply curious about how to cultivate and not cultivate, <laughs> how you know, to unskillfully cultivate the veiling factors and also how more skillfully not to cultivate. So the Buddha's encouraging really to get to know how these work. Again and again, we see the Buddha comparing practice to craft, where we get to know how things work, get to know how these factors operate, what intensifies them, what diminishes them. In the awakening factors, again, the Buddha is saying, you notice the presence and absence and, know, and get to know how do we bring these factors into our experience of the moment? What can I do with my attention that awakens a sense of curiosity or awakens a sense of energy or joy or calmness or collectedness or balance? And so this kind of, very, it's really kind of sleeves, up, sleeves rolled up kind of practice, where again, these not as some abstract list that's distant from our experience, but these invitations to explore in the midst of our own experience, the presence and the absence and the, what cultivates and what doesn't cultivate both these hindering and obscuring and entangling factors, but also these awakening factors. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.